there. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host Peng Fei Zhao speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. Today, I'm very excited to talk with Scott Sider from Boston College and Darren Gravens from Simons University on their new book, "Schooling for Critical Consciousness." Engaging Black and Latinx Youth in Analyzing, Navigating, and Challenging Racial Injustice. The book was just published this year by Harvard Education Press. Over the past thirty years, we have seen a steady increase of students of color in American public schools. A public school review reported that in nineteen ninety seven. Over 63% of U.S. public school students were white, while in 2019, white students comprised just 49.7% of the 15 million students enrolled. One of the key questions we thus need to ask, and of course we are going to discuss with Scott and Darren today. Is how we shall prepare these students of color to become competent and responsible future citizens, especially given our increasingly widening racial disparity in almost all aspects of the social life. In their years of hard work with students of color, their parents and educators. The two scholars we are going to speak today have talked with many people who are concerned about this question and documented different ways that schools have been doing to address this question. Their efforts have crystallized in this very informative and timely book, "Schooling for Critical Consciousness." Now let's turn to Scott and Darren. Hello, Scott and Darren. Welcome to New Books in Education. Thanks so much thanks. for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Con- um, and congratulations on publishing your book. It's wonderful. Much appreciated. Yeah, we appreciate it. So maybe at the beginning of the interview, maybe each of you could briefly introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Well, maybe I'll. So I'm I'm Scott. I'm、uh, Scott Sider. I'm an associate professor of、um, applied developmental psychology at Boston College in the Lynch School of Education and Human Development. And、um, and my my research focuses on the role that schools can play in fostering youth civic development. Great. This is Scott, and、uh, welcome. Thank you. My name is、uh, Darren Graves. I'm an associate professor of social work and education at Simmons University here in Boston. Um, where my、uh, work lies at the intersection of racial identity development, critical race theory, and teacher education. Wonderful! Welcome to New Books, Darren. Thank you.、Um, let's start with some、uh, sort of like conventional questions we usually ask our guests in New Books in Education.、Uh, how did each of you come to the topic of racial justice and schooling? Yeah, if I, I'll go first on this one,、um, for me,、um, the topic of racial justice in schooling is—it's a personal one.、Um, I think it's—it stems from、uh, me coming from a family of educators,、um, a family of black educators,、um, and so 
given the history of, of you know, the United States and, and the ways in which um, education has, you know, had been denied, you know, in some ways continues to be denied to uh, Black folks and other uh, minoritized communities, it's, it's hard for me to disentangle the topic of racial justice in schooling. Um, so I think I was, you know, I was raised by parents and grandparents um, who, for whom schooling and racial justice were very intertwined. And so I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, um, I, I feel like I'm part of a, a legacy of Black folks in, the, in this country who um, have sought to achieve uh, varying forms of justice, especially, you know, racial justice uh, through schooling. Um, and so j there's just a long history of Black folks in this country, you know, uh, making schooling, schooling and education happen for ourselves, um, even in the most dire of circumstances when schooling um, was denied to us intentionally um, and then not given to us in high quality ways uh, since then. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's a personal calling and my... Um, the more education I got, the further I got um, in the realm of education and schooling, um, the more I saw myself as having a responsibility um, to making sure that the folks who come after me um, have those same opportunities, if not more. Thanks for sharing, Darren. If I hear you uh, correctly, I think you see education still as a way of transforming the society, of transforming individuals' life, especially among Black kids and Black young adults. And I really appreciate that. Yes, I, yes, I, I agree with that. I, I think it's, um, th there are ways in which, you know, having um, a formal, you know, formalized and informal education and understanding of the world uh, gives us um, the tools to uh, dismantle um, some of the powerful ideas um, that have been used to help oppress, you know, Black folks and other uh, minoritized communities. I definitely look forward to hearing more about how schooling can be, uh, could be this powerful tool to dismantle the hegemonic discourse. Um, but before that, I would like to turn to Scott to uh, hear Scott's story about how he came to the, uh, the, the study of racial justice and uh, schooling. Hi, sure. Scott. Hi. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's sort of a personal answer and sort of a professional answer to the, you know, to the, to the question. And I think both will probably come up a little bit, but, um, but maybe I'd start by saying, so, you know, so in 2012, I, um, I published a book about the role that schools could play in fostering young people's character development. And I mean, I was kind of part of that, that, that sort of interest in character development and social emotional learning that was kind of happening right around, um, the start of this past, this past decade. And so the book came out in 2012, and 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 at the same time in 2012, that's the same year that Trayvon Martin was killed, um, and and the Black Lives Matter movement started to started to to to, to rise in response to that. And um, and I think like as someone who was who had written this book about character development, it was kind of participating in in the the interest within education circles in the role that schools could play in in fostering youth character development. I started I started worrying that that schools. Um, in their excitement around character development processes, um, were potentially messaging to, to young people 
that all that matters in your in your sort of pathway, you know, through the world are your internal qualities, qualities like growth mindset and grit and perseverance and, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and, and I think that those qualities are, are important. Like I think that um, perseverance matters and so on and so forth. Um, but I also think it's the case like, you know, and I think the Black Lives Matter movement really, really pushed, you know, the United States sort of more broadly to, 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 to grapple with this, that, that, that external social forces impact our movement through the world as well. And, and I just started to worry that schools were, were potentially messaging to young people that it's internal qualities that matter and that they weren't doing enough to, preparing, to prepare young people to navigate and challenge external social forces like racism. And, and so I think like that's, that's for me sort of where the first seeds of the project came, started worrying that schools weren't doing enough to help young people think about and learn how to prepare for um, external social forces like racism. And then, and then I think like simultaneously wrapped up in all of that, I was becoming into around 2012, I was um, becoming a parent for the first time. Um, I was reading a lot um, sort of as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement. I was reading a lot about the role that parents play in preparing young people of color, their children of color to, to navigate and challenge racism in, in the world we live in, the society we live in. As a as sort of a prospective parent um, and a prospective parent of children of color, I was I was thinking a lot about these issues and and sort of also as a school person started thinking about well what's the role that schools play in this in this work and and you know by no means are Darren and I the first folks to to ask that question but but we felt like we wanted to do a project that could contribute to to answering that question. Wonderful. So if I hear you correctly, um, there seems to be this process of zooming out. Because it sounds like the first book, the uh, 2012 book, is zooming in to look at the internal characteristics, to look at the internal dispositions. And in this, in this specific project, you are zooming out to look at the links between the internal and the external. That's right. I think that's right. Yeah. So how did you uh, come together to collaborate on this project then? Let's see. So, well, this is Scott again. Um, so, so I am, as I kind of, I sort of had this interest in thinking about the roles that schools could play in, in fostering young people's ability to recognize and resist racism. Um, and, and in many ways that did connect to my, to my own research background as someone who focused on youth civic development, but, but I had never done any work explicitly focused on, on issues of racial identity or awareness of racism or critical consciousness. And, and Darren and I, who knew each other, um, from, from grad school, I knew that that was exactly what Darren had spent the last decade studying. And so, um, and so we lived in, the, we were fortunate, we both live in, in Boston, um, at, you know, work at different universities, but are sort of geographically in, in the same place and, and reached out to him and said, hey, I'd love, to, would you be interested in collaborating on, um, on a project? And I think that's kind of where, where, we, where we got things going. Oh, that's great. And uh, thanks for sharing all these interesting personal stories and how you came to this project together. So now maybe let's move to the book. And it's a very appealing, very interesting book to, to read and very powerful. So you start your book by talking about the time as uh, our time, as the dangerous time. And if, you, if I understand it correctly, the danger is specifically related to the racial injustice in the United States. Uh, would you like to talk more about that? 
Sure. So I'll um, let me let me take this one, and then I'll ask Darren to 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 follow up on on the on the next question or to or to add on to this one. So so we start the book with a with a with an excerpt from a talk to teachers that that James Baldwin gave in 1963, um, where he was talking to teachers about his advice um, for for effectively teaching black youth. And he sort of said, if I were a teacher of black youth, these are some of the things I would keep in mind. And he started the talk by telling teachers that in terms of racial injustice and racism, he said, we're living through a dangerous time. This was in the early 1960s. And, and we start the book with that quote from, from Baldwin because unfortunately, almost 60 years later, this is still very much a dangerous time for young people of color. You know, our, our book and our project followed um, about 400 young people in the class of 2017 all the way through their four years of high school. And, and during that time, during, those, during these young people's four years of high school, they, they witnessed on the news the, the extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, unfortunately many others. They witnessed the presidential campaign of Donald Trump, where he referred to Mexican as rapists, and then after becoming president, enacted a so-called Muslim ban um, you know, on, you know, on, on, several, on, on a number of countries sort of restricting immigration into the United States. They watched white supremacists rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, as they were graduating from high school. And then those young people in the class of 2017 matriculated to college, in, you know, in, the, in many cases, as, as campus hate crimes were surging across the United States. Like, and so, so those are, those are just some of the reasons why, why sadly, like James Baldwin's talk to teachers in 1963 um, felt still very much applicable to, to the present day. And that's, and that's why we sort of start the book with, um, with, with Baldwin's words. Well, thanks. Uh, Darren, would, do you like anything to add for this question? No, I think Scott very much covered the, <laughs> the context um, that, that, we were, that, the, that we saw um, young folks having to, to navigate um, or to make sense of. And um, I think, yes, and I think we became really interested in how schools um, were helping students make sense of that reality much less and hope you know much less do something about that reality and so I think it was also coming from a place of you know as as an adult you know thinking about like how can our society be transformed to not reproduce these um dangerous times and and to me as an educator and as a person who believes in young folks I was really interested in making sure that our young folks were equipped um to be able to help uh change uh change, change the, our society for the better in that regard. Right. And I think given this context, it's very important to raise the question of how the young people, specifically the youth of color, grew up in this uh, age, in this dangerous time. Since you two are so close to them, you have been working so closely with them uh, for the past four years or so. Would you like to say a little bit more about their reactions, their responses, their thoughts on this issue? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'll take this one. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think as a person who works um, in schools and was working in schools at the time with young folks, you, you, could, you definitely got the sense that um, young folks were very much paying attention um, to the the issues that Scott was raising before, it's very personal for them, right? They, they very much could see themselves um, in the, you know, the victims of this violence. Um, and, we're, you know, and you, and you heard concern for their own safety, the safety of their families. Um, 
And so this was not something that was just happening on the news that adults were interested in that we were trying to sort of, you know, make, you know, or, you know, sort of compel young folks to be interested in. These, these are issues that young folks were very much interested in. And for me, um, as a developmental psychologist and as someone who's really interested in racial identity development, I think it, it, it's, I'm particularly interested in the kind of messaging that young folks are getting about, you know, their lives, you know, who they can be, who they can become, um, and how um, these events uh, can make things confusing. And so in other words, um, I think, you know, we have in the United States, uh, you know, very, you know, popular sort of master narrative that says, look, like, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter your class, like it all, you know, all that really matters is how hard your work and if you put in the hard work, um, you can you can be, become whoever you want to become, right? And so I think there's that narrative on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, given all the the you know things that young folks and we we're all seeing um, in the ways of you know extrajudicial killings and other types of racial violence, that sends a very um, uh, contradictory message to the first one that I was talking about that makes makes it abundantly clear that it does matter what race you are. It does matter, you know, your ethnicity or your um, immigration status, um, and that and those things can have very you know detrimental impacts on your life. And so, to me, as a as a someone who's really interested in the development of young folks, I could see how those messages are very confusing, right? They're contradictory, um, and so. Um, if you're not, if you don't have um, what um, some folks call like the psychological armor, right, to be able to, I think it was Sean Jin, right, talked about this notion of psychological armor to be able to understand these contradictory messages. I think young folks have the um, the potential to either, you know, ignore, you know, the very real things that they might be seeing and then putting, you know, and, and things that folks are experiencing in the world that could put them at, at, at risk, right? Right. So, or they could, you know, become um, super um, uh, pessimistic, right, about their, you know, their potential to, to contribute to our society and then not want to, you know, become apathetic about life. And we didn't want either one. We didn't want students who are we don't, I don't want students who are overly Pollyannish about, you know, the way things are in the world. And I don't want students who are, young folks who are, you know, super pessimistic. I don't think that they can do anything about any of this. And so for us, we were really interested in critical consciousness um, as a frame um, to help students deal with that dilemma. And we're, and we're really referring to critical consciousness using a, the Frarian, uh, Paulo Freire's uh, definition as the ability to recognize oppressive forces uh, shaping society and then take action against them. Um, so we were really interested in the ways in which young folks were uh, able to both recognize these forces and then think about how to do something um, to take action against them. And I think the last thing I'll say about this is that we recognize that folks, you know, that there are many different uh, sources for critical consciousness for young folks, including parents and faith institutions and other, you know, out of school organizations, but we were really, we were really interested in what schools were doing specifically to help uh, young folks develop critical consciousness, because we saw it as a way for them to, to both uh, navigate these uh, dangerous times, but also more importantly, hopefully to then transform 
and challenge um, the uh, forces that are creating these dangerous times. Thanks, Darren. And I think your answer really makes me think um, two things. The first thing is um, really I've heard or we've heard a lot a lot of discussions about racial injustice, about all these social issues uh, on popular media, but rarely did we uh, have we heard about you know any voices from the youth of color. I don't know if you would agree with me on this or not, or maybe it's just me who um, haven't been paying too much attention on these issues um, and how these issues are represented on popular media. But I think this is definitely something um, I've noticed. Uh, yeah. No, I would agree with that. And, and I would, and you know, I, I de- we do have examples. I think the Black Lives, Ladder, Black Lives Matter movement was in some ways, you know, very much, you know, led by, um, you know, young folks in some ways. But I do think there was a contrast. Like, so for example, when there was the gun violence um, down in Florida, uh, we, the, you know, the, the, the young folks who organized and rose up, you know, against that were very much at the forefront um, right. of our national consciousness. And I don't think, and I agree with you that I don't think we turn to young uh, folks of color in the same way, uh, though, even though young folks of color would have been doing work, the Dream Defenders, uh, you know, uh, Black Youth Project in, um, in Chicago have been doing this work. I don't think the, the public consciousness, you know, really turned to listening to the voices and perspectives um, of young folks in this regard. And we're hoping that this research and this book will help to, you know, do a little bit of that, of, of trying to raise those voices and those perspectives. Definitely. And we, um, I look forward to hearing more thoughts uh, from you and Scott on these issues, and also maybe at some point of this interview, you could um, tell us some of the stories uh, between you and how you interacted with um, the uh, youth of color that you are close with um, in this project. And I think my second response or my second reaction to what you said just now is, this very uh, problematic discourse about American dream. And it's, it's more like what you described in, your, um, um, in what you said about, you know, um, as long as you work hard enough, you could um, get whatever you want. You could be uh, whoever person or people you would like to be. But then um, it, it's, it is very much um, in conflict with um, all the issues um, we just talk about like the racial injustice and in what's in what way does the problem really ask us to rethink this uh discourse about american dreams or um is the, like do you think the young folks of color still have the potential to chase this dream or like should we revise the dream a little bit mm-hmm. Scott, I'll say something here, and then if you want to add on to it, that, that would be great. Um, I think um, the, the concept of critical hope, um, which I, uh, I, I'm, I'm borrowing from Jeff Duncan Andrade, I think is, is, is crucial here. I, I think it ties back to what I was saying before, this notion of finding a way in which you can both see the world 
for what it is and, you know, and the ways in which, you know, justice and injustice is, is happening um, so that you, so that the young folks understand, you know, the lay of the land and what it is they're actually going against, right? While also maintaining a sense of hope that things can, should, could get better. And I think that's kind of, that's a legacy, I think, of Black folks in this country. I, I think critical hope is something that we have always had to hold on to as a way of, you know, pushing forward, you know, in this country, despite uh, the ways in which, um, you know, things were not necessarily set up for us at all, much, much, much less for us to succeed. And so um, to me, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know if the American dream needs to be revised in as much as People need to see the American dream uh, through the lens of critical hope, um, through the lens of knowing that things can get better and do get better. And usually when folks realize um, and organize around um, seeing what, you know, the lay of the land really is in terms of racial injustice and then moving from there. Interesting. Thanks, Darren. Scott, do you have anything to add? I mean, I, I was also thinking that, that that concept of critical hope is it's quite important to, to in, in thinking about the answer to your question. Maybe I would just say very concretely that um, you know one of the one of the schools I've been studying way back in 2012 as part of that character project, um, you know, they their sort of motto was effort determines success, and um, and and that's a school that I have a lot of admiration for. I think there were a lot of good things happening at that school, and a lot that um, that other schools can learn from. But, but I think that there is something, there's a way in which that, that mantra, that effort determines success mantra, like is, 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 is too simplistic. Like, you know, and it's not sort of embodying the critical hope that, that Darren, that Darren refers to. Like, and I think that, um, you know, I think that, I think that that critical, you know, that, that idea that sort of effort is crucial to success is not something we want to lose, but, but we also, like, we also want to help young people understand that like, there are going to be external social forces and obstacles put in their pathways um, by, by oppression and, and you need strategies for, for navigating around those obstacles and then strategies for challenging those obstacles in order to, in order to, to knock them down. And, and I think that that's very much, if, if there's a revision to the American dream, I think it's, it's sort of infusing that, 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 those, that messaging around sort of how to navigate and challenge oppression. So that's very interesting. And also the uh, discussion about critical consciousness, about critical hope, brings naturally brings, brings us to, um, more specifically, to the project that you talked about in this book. Um, what would you hope to achieve in, uh, through this book or in conducting this project? If it's okay, I'll start with this one and then I'll pass it off to Scott, maybe. So I think for me, you know, again, we were really interested in the roles that schools could play in this work. And, you know, we make, you know, we we make kids, you know, young folks go to school. It's a place, you know, we love school and we want, you know, as educators, we, you know, we see it as an, you know, crucially important site in terms of our, you know, our society. And so, um, I think my, one of my goals uh, for the book was to help educators realize both that, I guess it's sort of twofold. One, that they need to do this work, that they need to, that educators need to see the work 
of helping students build critical consciousness as you know central um, to their to their work, right? And, and I know you know as someone who teaches, you know, who trains teachers, I know a lot of times we we sort of see the work of 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 be, being a good teacher as you know delivering content, um, you know, uh, making sure that students know their ABCs and one two threes, right? And that those are important things for sure. And we wanted to help, you know, we, we need stu uh, teachers and educators to realize that um, that schooling is a, you know, an explicitly political um, process and act. And so there's part of us that part of my goal was to was to help uh, educators either who already had this disposition or folks who weren't quite there yet to realize that, like, part of the job is to help uh, be a part of this um, American, you know, political uh, process. Um, and then I think more importantly, um, I think that we wanted to show educators um, how they could do this work. And um, we'll talk about this more later. We weren't looking for the way necessarily to do it, but that, 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 that there were many ways to do this, but we wanted to be able to illustrate um, to educators uh, how this work uh, could or should be done. Um, and so I think in that regard, we looked, we tried to get a, a variety of schools and schooling models, um, to show this. And so I, I get, you know, for, in the work that I do, I get educators all the time who are like, you know, yes, I think this is important. I think we need to be helping students develop critical consciousness, but how do I do that? How do I do that? You know, given their, you know, various, um, circumstances. And so we were, um, really interested in finding schools that, you know, had this as a as, as a mission, and then to and then to show um, the the variety of ways this work uh, could or should look. And I and I think I'd only add that um, you know sort of just just doubling down on what Darren's saying that um, that you know the book the book is very it's not a thirty thousand foot view of of what critical consciousness is and how it works. You know I think we sort of we start with a framework like this idea that critical consciousness you know, that, that a critically conscious young person is someone who can analyze, navigate, and challenge oppressive social forces like racism. And then we really sought out specific programming and practices in schools where, where educators were, were helping students to develop those qualities of analysis, navigation, and challenge, and, and to try to understand what impact those practices were having on the young people themselves. And so, um, so you know, I'm, I think we're hopeful that this is a book that, um, that other scholars will be interested by, but, but ultimately it's a book geared for, geared, aimed, at, aimed at folks who are, who are, who are teaching, teaching young people. Like, and it's aiming to, to introduce some practices that, um, that other educators are using and for us to sort of describe those practices and also describe their impact. And, and if I could just add one more thing to build on what Scott just said, we're, bo we're both, yes, we're interested in the practices um, which which will be varied depending on the context, and we were really interested in offering a framework, right? And Scott just you mentioned the framework around analyzing, navigating, and challenging oppression as a way for you know as a jumping off point, if you will, for educators to be able to do this work and then figure out which practices, given their their particular context and missions, would help um, students achieve um, uh, develop critical consciousness. Um, through that framework. So why is the framework so important to you? I think the framework is important because you know, if you, if, 
you could get caught up in the notion that, oh, there's so many different ways this, you know, could or should look, right? And then I think if you fall too far down that rabbit hole, it just feels like, you know, there's no organizing principle behind how to do the work. Um, and so I think we wanted to, you know, find a, a middle ground of saying, yes, on the one hand, because, you know, schools are so different in terms of their size, in terms of their pedagogical strategies, in terms of their demographics, you know, and so on and so forth, um, that will create a variety of ways this could look. But we also feel like there's a centralized um, set of ideas and a frame that can guide um, that work so that in some ways, um, despite the, the, the diversity of practices that we're, we'd like, we were likely, you know, we were likely going to see as we did the research, we definitely felt like having a framework um, would be uh, something that would ground uh, this work in ways that, do, that, that didn't create these different projects or critical concepts just spiraling into like totally different uh, realms and different, you know, ways that it could look in a way that didn't feel coherent or useful to folks who weren't in that particular uh, teaching or schooling context. And just, to, and just to sort of give an example from the project of how powerful a framework can be, um, one, of, one of the schools in our, in our study, what we found is we we're sort of looking at our quantitative survey data was that, to, that the young people in this school were finishing high school with stronger analytic skills around issues of race than, than all the other schools in our study. And when we kind of turn to our qualitative data to try to understand like, well, what, what could be happening at that school that's contributing to, to students just really demonstrating these pretty sophisticated analytic skills around understanding racism, um, one of the things we found was that in the ninth grade at this school, all of the students participated in this social engagement course where they were introduced to a framework um, for understanding oppression. And it was called the Three Eyes Framework. And this, as part of the course, like students really investigated very deeply the idea that oppression can, can be um, interpersonal in nature, institutional in nature, or internalized in nature. And students sort of learned about each of these different types of oppression, and they sort of examined historical events and current um, current systems where where these different types of oppression are you know are manifest and and then actually over the course of students high school careers because they sort of possess this framework for for making sense of the world students teachers and other courses like all the way through their high school careers would sort of draw on that framework like whether it was a history class like you know or even a science class you know um, student you know the teachers would sort of say oh let's think about this in terms of institutional impression or let's think about this in terms of in interpersonal oppression and 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 so I think that like that's what is true for those those young people is very much true for for adults and educators as well that like you know a framework offers a way of making sense of the world and sort of organizing organizing one's work and one's sort of approach to to doing the work and um, and so I think that's I think that's also a reason why we found it so important to kind of ground the book in in a framework for understanding what critical consciousness is. Wow, that sounds very interesting. Um, it sounds like on the on the one hand, there are a myriad of understandings of what critical theory is, what critical consciousness is, and you can go into that sort of like a theoretical, um, abstract, and dry conversation, um, and it could be endless. And on the other hand, there are these large needs of developing critical-oriented programs, schooling programs, 
um, across different parts of this country and maybe for different types of students. So, so it sounds like framework offers a connection between the two or framework is something connected to in a way that can still allow um, teachers, yeah, teachers teaching and students learning ground in the solid understanding of critical consciousness. Yes, I agree with that. And the last thing, I think the last thing I'll say about this, it also gives, I think it gives uh, educators kind of a roadmap, um, both for, you know, ways to help, you know, students develop critical consciousness and also a way to help gauge, you know, how they are doing in that work and thinking about, um, the, the sort the, the many different uh, avenues, you know, the different avenues through which um, those, uh, through which critical consciousness can be developed. Well, that's really cool. Now let's turn to these um, five programs you studied in this book. Uh, would you like to give us a very brief overview of these five programs? Sure. So, um, so, so, I mean, I guess I'd say like what, what we did sort of when we, when we set out to, to think about this project was we said, okay, we'd like to, we'd like to understand um, different, different programming and practices that contribute to youth critical consciousness development. And, and, and we want to understand, we want to think about different ways of, of doing the work. And so, so on one hand, um, we wanted to sort of find schools that were very similar to each other so that we could kind of compare students critical consciousness development um, across the different types of schools, but we also were sort of very deliberately seeking out schools that that sort of approached the critical consciousness work they were doing from different pedagogical lenses. And so, um, and so, what we ended up, you know, what's what we ended up sort of writing about are five different schools that um, that are all high schools, all located in northeastern cities, all serve almost entirely Black and Latinx students. Um, and, and all have some sort of language in their mission statements around sort of doing civic development work with, with young people. Um, but the schools sort of approach the work um, from different pedagogical orientations. And so one school in our study um, explicitly sort of named itself after Paulo Freire and took sort of Freire's problem-posing approach to education, um, which is this sort of very um, egalitarian approach where teachers and students work as partners to, um, to sort of address real-world problems facing their communities. Another school in our project um, came out of the Coalition of Essential Schools um, model, which is this very inquiry-based approach to learning, where, where there's a focus on sort of these habits of mind that students, you know, that, that is sort of a, the, the, that students need to develop in order to become sort of, you know, successful scholars and, you know, and professionals. Um, another, another school in our study came out of the expeditionary learning movement, um, which, which kind of comes from the outward bound movement, which sort of frames learning as this expedition into the unknown and, and takes a very sort of, um, takes a very sort of action oriented approach to, to, to learning. Another school in our study was a no excuses school, um, which is sort of a very traditional, which takes a, a very traditional, um, approach to education with a focus on direct instruction and hierarchical teacher-student relationships and, um, you know, long school day, long school year, sort of very intensive focus on college preparation. Um, and, and a fifth school in our study was, came out of sort of an action civics pedagogy, which is this, um, this, this perspective that sort of, you know, older approaches to teaching civics that focused on, you know, on facts and dates and, um, you know, the three branches of government are, are sort of not all that effective and that, and that what, 
civics, you know, what good civic development really requires is simulations and community service learning and, um, you know, and student government and so on and so forth. So, so our goal was to kind of look at um, the young people sort of moving through high school in these very, in these high schools that were all focused on civic development, but doing the work in very different ways. And our goal was both to sort of undermine the practices that the schools were using to, to try to influence young people consciousness, but also to, to try to measure how the young people's critical consciousness was changing over time. And then to kind of put those, those two types of data together and really understand and to, to draw some conclusions about, about what kind of practices, you know, educators and schools can, can utilize um, that, that can have particular effects on young people's critical consciousness. Wonderful. Darren, would you, uh, would you like to add anything? Um, no, I think, I think uh-huh. Scott covered all of that, so I'm a, I'm gonna let that I'm gonna let that stand as as a cool. Although I consider myself um, also a educator, and I also works in uh, one of the largest college of education in this country, I feel like you know since I'm not an expert in this field, and I never thought about there could be so many different pedagogical approaches to this issue. That's really interesting to hear Scott and Darren, you talk about how, you know, different schools, although they share the same mission or similar mission statements, they could come up with so many different ways to implement uh, this uh, mission of to program the, uh, their work. Yeah, and if, if I, I guess what I could add to that is, you know, being a teacher educator, um, and, you know, working with teachers who are in really, you know, really different circumstances, you know, I, I, I'm very much used to, you know, uh, as a teacher educator, you know, presenting a particular approach to dealing with a specific issue, um, teachers saying that sounds really nice, but in my space, we have like a different approach or a different model. So I don't know if I can do this. Right. And so I think, um, we both entered this project with the orientation, you know, hearing those voices, hearing those concerns um, from teachers, and uh, really trying to create a, a research methodology and a model that um, would be able to answer answer those concerns. So, in other words, knowing that you know teachers were going to be coming at this work from so many different uh, perspectives and 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 models of teaching that we we felt it was important to not find or look for like the way that this work you know should look but rather to look for the many possibilities um for the for for this work um and and hopefully in having educators from that the, the, those varieties of context see a way in um for them to be able to do that work and i yes. and- Oh, go ahead, Scott. I would just add, like, so I think Darren sort of pinpointed there one one sort of unusual feature of the project, which is that we weren't coming into the project with sort of you know a particular sort of or like pedagogical approach that we wanted to to kind of focus in on, you know, because we believe that to be the best. I think that was that was you know a key feature of the project. And then I'd say, like, I think that I think that our, the the scope of our project was a little different than much of the the previous work on on critical consciousness in the sense that I think there's 
there are some, some really some really terrific sort of big data studies on critical consciousness where folks look at, you know, sort of big national data sets and, and look at sort of how um, critical consciousness kind of relates to other outcomes. Um, and, you know, and I think that work has been really important. And then I think there's been some much more, much more sort of fine grain research that's also been really important that's looked at sort of um, teacher, pra teacher practices in sort of a single classroom or maybe a few classrooms and sort of, and try to really understand in a very sort of deep, you know, ethnographic way sort of what, what teachers committed to this work are doing. And, and we were doing something a little bit in the middle of those two, of those two sort of sides of the spectrum where we were looking, you know, at these five different schools, like we were following about 400 kids across these schools, like as they move through high school. And we were sort of both, we were trying to both capture kind of like the, the ethnographic, you know, the, the, the everyday practices that teachers were, were utilizing and schools were utilizing to contribute to young people's critical consciousness, but also to try to measure change over time in, in the critical consciousness of the young people. And so I think that, I'm, I'm hopeful that that another way in which this project will kind of contribute to the to the existing scholarship and critical consciousness development is by sort of occupying a space that that a lot of the that that that's a bit unusual in comparison to some of the work that's come before it. Yeah, and and I would just add to that as well that you know um, the, in terms of the long, the longitudinal piece that we could also you know show educators um, and other interested folks researchers about what the development of critical consciousness actually looks like. So I feel like a lot of the studies that are out there take snapshots and show us at a specific point in time. But I, and I was really excited about the ways in which we as researchers, and then when we publish the book and other research from the, from the re, um, other articles from the research can show um, educators the dynamic nature of critical consciousness development in young folks so that they could actually you know, through their voices, through the voices of the young folks hear and see what um, critical consciousness might look like, not at any given time, but over time. Yes, indeed. It's very eye-opening for me, and it's very exciting. And with what with you said just now, that actually taps into my next question about how. How did you do that? And And I would like to hear more about how you unpack this middle ground uh, approach to this issue. Well, so I mean, I guess I would say we did we did, we we did a couple things. We collected three different types of data as part of this project. We um, so one thing we did is that we you know and again the we are focusing on five schools and the young people in the class of two thousand seventeen at those five schools. And so what we did is we gave the young people in the very first week of high school, ninth grade. We gave them a, a survey that tried to understand like their 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 ability to analyze oppressive social forces, navigate oppressive social forces, and challenge oppressive social forces as they as they entered high school. Um, and so we gave them this this survey um, that we had sort of put together, drawing on work by by other scholars. And then we gave them that same survey again at the end of ninth grade, at the end of tenth grade, the end of eleventh grade, and the end of twelfth grade, so that we could so that we could try to understand and model how their critical consciousness. Was was changing and developing over their four years of high school, and so we had we had that quantitative survey data as as one piece of the as one piece of the puzzle, and then we chose a smaller group of students, about ten students at each of the at each of the five schools, and we did interviews with those students at the end of each year of high school, so the end of ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade, you know, so that we had sort of um, a, you know sort of a deeper qualitative understanding of how young people's critical consciousness of race and racism was changing over four years of high school. And also their perspectives on how their respective schools were contributing um, or not contributing to those processes. And then last but not least, we, we and our research team spent about 10 to 15 days observing 
in each of the schools each year. So that by the end of the project, we had actually spent over 300 days observing across the five schools across the four years. And, and so at the end of this project, we had, you know, um, we had survey data um, for each year of high school from about 400 young people. We had four years of qualitative interview data from about 60, um, 60 of those young people. And then we had you know, tens of thousands of pages of field notes from, from these 300 days of observation across the, across the five schools. And our goal as researchers was then to triangulate that data and, and to really try to understand, okay, like if, if you know, as I mentioned before, if, if, a school, if young people in a particular school are sort of are either finishing high school with particularly high levels of some aspect of critical consciousness or are demonstrating significant growth on a particular dimension of critical consciousness, you know, and, the, and that's showing up in our survey data, what can our qualitative interview data and our ethnographics field notes, our ethnographic field notes data help us to understand about the ways in which the school might be contributing to that growth? And so, so that's, the, that's the way in which we approach the work. That is a lot of work. So, for, well, it was this, I mean, this was, you know, this is a, you know, we started this project together in 2013 and, um, you know, and, and we're still, in many ways, we're still working on it. And so, yeah, no, it's been, it's been a, a multi-year project for, for sure. Yeah. Uh, would you like to add anything, Darren? No, I think Scott uh, covered it. I, again, I think for me, um, the, our methodology was, was very exciting um, because I think, you know, a lot of the research out there kind of, you know, lived in one world or the other, you know, living in the quantitative world or living in the qualitative world or, you know, looking at a snapshot. Um, uptime but so to me the the combination of the quantitative data the qualitative data the longitudinal um perspective um to me was super exciting as a researcher because i think um i it helped um answer questions um that i hadn't quite yet seen answered you know in the in the research field um, so I, I feel really honored to be able to, to contribute to the field with Scott in this, in this way, because um, I feel like the kind of data that we have, um, both in the book and then also in our other um, research articles, we, get to, we really get a an opportunity to speak to, you know, uh, different uh, types of audiences, you know, developmental psychologists, you know, teacher educators, um, folks interested in, in race uh, and race theory. Um, so for me, you know, I, I was I was excited by the I'm and I remain excited by the opportunity to speak to um, diverse yet related uh, folks and in, in, in disciplines who are sort of who are sort of circling around um, this issue of critical consciousness development from their own uh, disciplinary perspective. Thanks. And I definitely feel like there are a lot more to discuss about the methodology. And personally, that's also my interest because I would consider myself as a methodologist. Uh, but maybe just one more follow-up question about the methodology because I really, really want to go into the finding part as well. It's, uh, it's very exciting. And maybe I think my, our audience will benefit most from the finding part. Uh, what are some of the challenges? If like given that you uh, the length of the given the length of the study and the, the depth of the study, yeah, maybe I'll, each of you can give us just one like yeah. one of the challenges you have to overcome. 
I'll start with this one. And so um, I think one of the challenges is, um, so I am a teacher educator, right? And so I do have um, maybe some, you know, and I, and I do research these issues. And so maybe I do have um, some, you know, strong feelings or opinions um, about, you know, what this work of developing critical consciousness, you know, could or should look like. Um, and one of the challenges, and I, and I always love this challenge as a researcher, is to be in the role of curious researcher, right? And so what does that mean? That means, um, you know, we, we actually, you know, Scott and I and the rest of our team would actually, you know, go into the schools and see what's going on, right? And um, as a teacher educator and as an educator, you know, there are ways in which, you know, it, it, it can be, you know, a challenge to not impose um, upon you know the you know the school or the or the teacher or the classroom that you're observing your sense my own sense right of what should be going on it was a nice challenge and I always enjoy the challenge in research in general to step back and really just see what's going on and try and without evaluating what's happening um, just try and see what's actually go observe what's going on and try and get a sense of from the perspective of you know, yes, the educators, but even more importantly, this in case, in this case, get their perspective, you know, from the student's perspective, you know, what's going on and how it's working for them. Um, so I think for me, again, it's this notion of going into the spaces and seeing what I see and, and taking it for what it is um, and trying to get it from and trying to understand from the student's perspective what's going on and how it's working rather than for me uh, with my own set of um, uh, notions or preconceived ideas about what should be going on, imposing that on the, the school or the, or the classroom environment of the teacher and then evaluating whether that's happening or not. So I really, I really appreciated the, the, the opportunity to sit back um, and, tr and try and, and, and just see what's going on as opposed to evaluate. Well, thanks for sharing, Darren. I believe you are not the only person who um, always need to navigate this uh, challenge or similar challenges. And Scott, what about you? Um, I think I would. I think I would only add just that you know there was th th there was there was a lot of there were a lot of balls in the air with this project, as you can imagine. We were we were sort right. of we were looking at five schools uh, that were located in four different cities. Um, we and all of those schools had different you know, calendars and vacation schedules and, you know, um, started school and ended school at different times of the day. And there was a big team of wonderful folks working with us on this project, graduate students, undergraduate students, postdoctoral fellows. And, um, and so, so it was honestly, there was, there was just a lot of logistical work in sort of managing all of those, um, all of those different relationships with all of those different schools and, and all of the different folks who, who played a role in, in carrying the project off. So it sounds like even the logistical issues could be a very big challenge because, you know, given all of these factors that weigh into the whole process, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, again, that says uh, more to how unique the project is and how valuable the findings are. So let's just move into the, the part about the findings. What are some of the findings you would like to highlight? for our audience. Great, let's see. Um, 
Darren, do you want me to take this or do you want to take this one? You can start and then I'll jump in. So I, I guess I would say that uh, what we found was that, you know, as, as just as a reminder, we were looking at sort of how five different schooling approaches impacted the, the critical consciousness development of the young people they served and really trying to understand the particular programming and practices. And right. I'd say like, you know, at the, at, the sort of, at the sort of highest level, I guess I would say we found that different, different schooling models seem to, seem to contribute, seem to be particularly good at fostering different aspects of young people's critical consciousness. And so, so for example, there were some, some, some of the pedagogy, some of the schools we were studying took a more, took, took a more inquiry oriented approach to critical consciousness work, such as the school that, that was explicitly foster, you know, work, uh, working from Paulo Freire's problem posing orientation. And the young people at that school, as I, as I mentioned before, those young people um, finished high school with higher skills around issues of race, racism than their peers across the other schools in the study. Um, at the same time, um, the, some of the more action-oriented schools in our study, such as the, the school that took an action civics approach, the expeditionary learning school, the young people at that school finished, finished high school um, or demonstrated the greatest growth over high school in their, in their confidence and their ability and their commitment to, to challenging oppressive social forces through, through activism and other forms of social action. And then the no excuses school in our study, which is kind of a, which takes a very sort of traditional pedagogical approach, sort of heavy, you know, a, you know, a, a very um, hierarchical teacher-student relationship, a very, um, um, you know, sort of a very uh, strict disciplinary approach and so on. Like the young people at that school finished high school with, with greater confidence in their ability to navigate oppressive social forces, to sort of move forward um, and thrive in a world where, where these, where these oppressive social forces are, you know, are, you know, are pernicious and persistent. And so, so I think that, you know, the, in the book, what we try to do is, re, is report on those differences to say, hey, like these, these schools that are all committed to this work, um, the, you know, their, their young people actually did emerge from, from their high school experiences with different sets of skills around critical consciousness. And, and then to try to say, and here's what the, the inquiry-oriented schools were doing. To, to foster young people's analytic skills. And here's what the action-oriented schools were doing to foster young people's commitment to activism. And here's what the No Excuses School was doing to, to foster young people's confidence about their ability to navigate oppressive social forces. And so, so I guess I would say that's kind of how, 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 the, how, the, how the book is structured in terms, of, in terms of the way we report on our findings. Yeah, and, and I think what I would add to that is sort of looping back to what we were saying before, our assumption that there was gonna be no single way to foster youth in a critical consciousness, um, and that we see, and that as Scott just showed that the different schooling models um, really focused on well, they really had an impact and sort of focused on the different elements of critical consciousness. If we're thinking about those elements as analyzing, navigating, and challenging um, oppressive systems, um, and so you know, if we think about that, you know, as we as as we were you know collecting the data and analyzing it, and then you know, writing it up, we, you know, Scott and I realized that, you know, none of these, you know, no single school, I think, um, did everything we were looking for. And by everything we we're looking for, we were sort of thinking about, if we thought of those three components, the analysis, the navigation, and the challenging as the three crucial components to developing critical consciousness, um, we, we, you know, we didn't see one school doing all of those things um, or focusing on all of those things or producing outcomes in all of those components, you know, uh, perfectly. Um, so we, we sort of assumed that that was going to happen. And we were hoping that uh, we, we realized that, you know, because of these different missions and models that 
you know, these different schools were going to probably focus on different pieces of those components. And we were hoping that when you take a look at the research in its entirety, that we would hope that the different schooling models um, and the different ways that schooling was happening, they could learn from each other, right? And then figure out ways that, okay, yes, we might, we at school A might be doing a lot of work on the analysis, but how do we get students to like challenge these things more, right, for example. And so I, I think the, the, when, you, when you get, we like the notion of zooming in to each of the schooling models to see how this work can and should look, right? And then we also want educators to zoom back out to look at the whole, the, the, the larger picture to figure out ways in which, okay, they might be doing work in this area and now they need to be maybe doing some more work in another area, another component of critical consciousness development. Um, so I, I think um, we were really interested in supporting, um, helping, stu helping, you know, affirm maybe some of the work that's already happening in particular schools, right? And saying, if you're doing this type of work, that seems to, that our, our research and other research seems to indicate that that's the right way to go. And thinking about new things, um, new approaches, um, they could add to their repertoire so that they can create a more robust um, uh, sense of critical consciousness or help youth develop a more robust sense of critical consciousness. Um, um, by by um, looking at different the different components um, of critical consciousness, that they may not have had and then they may not have spent as much time doing work around. So if I was a teacher or I was a school administrator and I was really interested in developing a program, assumingly I didn't have this uh, program ready in my school, then. Uh, by looking at your book, by reading the book, what are some of the takeaway points you would uh, give me? Like, what are some of the pieces of advice you would give me in selecting or in establishing my own program? So why don't I talk about, maybe I can sort of talk about advice to teachers and Darren can talk about advice to school leaders. Um, but so that's different, yeah. right? Right. I think that's true. I think I, mean, I think educate. I think you know, classroom classroom teachers and educate and administrators are are sometimes thinking about education from different perspectives. And so, okay, yeah, um, go ahead, yeah. So from a from a teacher perspective, I mean, I guess I would say two things. I mean, so one is, I mean, there is no question that what we do, you know, what we do in the book is sort of offer some very specific practices. And so I, you know, as just as an example, I sort of referenced this earlier in the, the interview, but we, we did find that, for instance, like, you know, inter, you know, I did introducing young people to theoretical frameworks for making sense of race, racism, and other oppressive social forces can be very, very powerful. Um, we also found that opportunities for students to teach other students represented a very powerful way to, to build student sense of to build student sense of efficacy about their ability to affect change. Um, we also found that um, that opportunities to affect change within the school itself um, played a big role in fostering young people's commitment to engaging in social action outside the school. And so, so those are just a couple of the, the very specific sets, um, examples of practices that we, that we found and that we report on in the, in the book about how teachers can go about doing critical consciousness work. Um, but I think like maybe from sort of a, at just like a slightly higher, higher level, I think I would say that if there's a educator who's who's thinking like, yes, I'm interested in doing more critical consciousness work with my, with my students, 
I think I would, I think I would sort of start with the framework, you know, this idea of like, okay, if critical conscious means to be able to analyze oppressive social forces, navigate oppressive social forces and challenge oppressive social forces, I think, you know, an educator can first sort of take stock about like, you know, in what ways are they already doing this work? Like in what, what practices are they already engaging in, in their, in their classroom that are fostering young people's ability to analyze oppressive social forces? What opportunities are they giving young people already to challenge oppressive social forces? And then I think it's a matter of, okay, what do I want to try to add into my repertoire to, 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 to make this work go even deeper? And, you know, I think that, I think that that could be as, as simple as, you know, saying, okay, like, you know, we, we study this historical event every year, but, but let's sort of, let's sort of go a little bit deeper in our analyses about how oppressive social forces contributed to this event or, or, or the ramifications of that event, you know, in, in history, in terms of current day um, inequity. And I think that would be sort of um, work that would be very connected to strengthening young people's analytic skills. Or let's say that, you know, you have a teacher who feels, who feels very confident about the work they're doing to, to, to support young people's analytic development, you know, in the analytic side of critical consciousness, but want to, want to, you know, do more on the, on the, on the action side. I think that, I think that that could be, you know, a, that could look like a teacher deciding, okay, let me, let me sort of end this unit with, with an assignment that gives a young person an opportunity to engage in some form of social action. And I think that could be as straightforward as ending a unit by assigning young people to write a letter to an elected representative expressing their perspective on a topic related to the, to the content they've been studying. And, and I think that like even, even something as straightforward as that, you know, gets a young person engaged in, in political processes, right? And they're going, to, they're going to send off this letter and they're going to get a response from, from that elected representative's office. And, you know, and I think even that plays, a, even that like pretty, pretty straightforward and pretty small act, you know, does represent a meaningful form of social action that can really kickstart a young, pe- a young person's thinking about, about what it means to, you know, to engage in activism around social and political issues. And so, so I think that would be my advice for, for a teacher who's sort of interested in deepening, you know, the role that critical consciousness work is playing in their own teaching. And, and if I could add to that in terms of the example that Scott just gave about, you know, you know, ending a unit with, you know, you know, you know, opportunities, even if it seems like a small opportunity to like, engage in action, we were very struck by the ways in which the young folks would then reference those opportunities and, and, and the ways in which it gave them a sense of agency. It gave them a sense of like, wow, like when I did this action, when I wrote to that, you know, uh, elected official, um, when I organized that panel, um, it really gave me a sense or when I had a chance to, you know, have a voice in changing uh, school policies. Um, it really gave me a sense that I can do this, that I can actually make a change, you know, and that's not automatic. You know, there, you know, there are some students, you know, who you'd ask them, you learned all, you know, you, you learned a lot about X, Y, and Z. So what can you do about it? Not every, not every student felt like they could, right, that they could do anything about it. But, men, but students who were given opportunities um, to practice these skills in ways that were big or small, whatever that means to you, we were very shook by the ways in which they would then follow that up by saying, and then, then it, that, that feeling of now I can do, I can do something about this. And I think that's, that's a crucial uh, disposition we want uh, students to develop. Cool. What about the administrators? Yeah. For, so for administrators, um, so we chose schools, right. That had missions um, around doing this work, right. And so a mission is, you know, a mission without a leader, you know, you know, making that 
mission come to reality are just words on a paper, right? And so that's just a long-winded way of saying that we, in the schools that we saw, and we saw different, you know, we saw different, you know, shades of gray of this, but the leaders are, the, the school administrators are the ones who help set a, a school culture um, and, and and help, you know, both the, the educators and the students, you know, li- enact and live out that mission. And so, you know, the, the school leader is the one who makes a mission either become just words on a paper or an actual set of values that drives the educational process. And so I think the administrators need, um, you know, can, you know, have a role in making this like a stated and public priority. Okay. Like if you're in, yes, ed- educators do this all over the country. And sometimes they have, you know, when sometimes they do this in the absence of, the, the, there's administrators or school leaders, you know, backing this work up, and the, and the, and the work can still be effective in that regard. But it's, it's it tends to be more isolated, and only right. working, you know, for the students for whom that educator has contact with. When you have a leader that says, "Hey, this is an important. This is this is these are our values. This is what we do here," right? Then that the impact uh, is way broader, and you get way more, if not all, the educators, right. Um, invested in the process, so that so this notion of leaders making it a, a, a stated and public priority um, is important. I think another layer to this, for, from the leadership perspective, is intentionally um, and continuously seeking to elevate voices and perspectives of folks who have you know traditionally been silenced. In this case, we might that that would be as we as we were saying earlier, young folks of color, right? And so there's a lot of ways in which this work can be done, right? And we can say, oh, you know, critical consciousness is important and we're just gonna like do it. But if you're not really, you know, giving if you're not creating a culture um that you as a school leader are either yourself or getting your the, the, the teachers who work under you to to intentionally seek out the perspectives of these young folks who are often ignored, right, in the process of thinking about how we make school better for them. Um, I think that's that that's a problem as well. So we need school leaders to be intentionally and continuously seeking to elevate the voices of young folks of color in this process. Um, they all, you know, this framework, right, and 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 the, and some of these other uh, practices can help. Edu- um, uh, school administrators set tangible goals, right, for this work, right? So, you know, it can help us, uh, school, the framework can help, uh, you know, administrators realize we need students to be able to analyze, navigate, challenge these issues, right? So those are, and you can take, you can set tangible goals, to spend, you know, depending on what that looks like in your particular school, and then continuously assessing those, the, uh, whether you're reaching those goals, right? And so, um, again, I think this is, and, and what that really speaks to is accountability, right? This notion of if you're setting it as a, 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 pro, a priority, you're elevating these voices, you're setting tangible goals and assessing them, that is how you create a sense of accountability for doing this work. And I think that's the most important part. Like we, I've been in many schools where, you know, you, you have a, you know, professional development about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, or racial justice or whatever, you sit in the two hour, you know, or, you know, professional development, and then everyone just goes home, right? And then nothing happens after that, after that PD. Um, when the leadership is holding folks accountable for doing this at all, much less continuously over time, then you actually see the results you're looking for. So I think, you know, in our study, um, we found we had many 
uh, you know, the leaders of these schools um, set the tone and definitely created a, a culture in the school where folk, where this work was valued um, and that educators knew that they would be, um, you know, in some ways evaluated as, you know, in terms of their teaching um, around the, their ability um, to help young folks develop critical consciousness. Well, these are very informative and helpful uh, suggestions. Now I, I left with one more question after hearing your thoughts on this. What about parents? You know, I'm a parent uh, who is raising a child of color now. And I would be very interested in hearing yourselves about how I can work with the schools and with the teachers and administrators to uh, cultivate my kids' critical consciousness. Uh, what right. if, like, I, I can't find a school that offers such opportunities, very crucial opportunities for my kids? This is a great question, and and I think the it, it it ties into something I was saying before. Well, let me just say that the first thing is that we both Scott and I very much believe that you know that parents, you know, guardians, families, right, community members are students' first teachers, right, in general and especially in this regard. So we definitely uh, went into this uh, research process not assuming that the schools were going to be like the initial or the prime movers of students critical or soul movers, right, of, 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 of students critical consciousness development. We, we, we very much uh, assume that, that parents, community, you know, family members were, uh, the, the, you know, the initial movers of the ways in which students make uh, sense of the world. And so I think schools, in, in the way I was saying before, like in terms of elevating voices and perspectives, um, you know, we, you know, schools in general need to do a better job of partnering with parents um, in this process. And, that, and what does that mean? That means that we need to be, you know, a acknowledging the no, the the sense that you know that that parents and family members are first teachers. That that parents and family members are highly invested, right, in this process of helping students develop critical consciousness. Um, and therefore need to be thinking more about um, partnering with parents in ways that make sense, right? Partnering with parents and families in this process um, of developing critical consciousness. And that would involve, for example, like, you know, by, you know, trying to reach out to families and community members to think about, you know, what is that, what, you know, what outcomes are they looking, are they looking for in their, for, for their own children around critical consciousness development? Um, seeing the ways in which that would intersect with the work that we do in schools and moving from there. And then looping back, by the way, to the parents and the community and the family members to figure out if this is working. Again, I think too often um, we have this, this, you know, this sort of disposition in schools and, and, and education research in which, you know, we as the educators or the researchers are the experts in what, you know, we're looking for in, in the students. And then Kind of, and then, and then, kind of just throw, you know, just show the, the the parents like, okay, we did it, right? As opposed to, you know, talking to the parents about what it is, you know, what should this look like, and what have you already done, and how can we build on that, um, and move from there, and then loop back to the to the community members and the parents to figure out is it working? Are you seeing the results that you are looking for? So again, I think that really speaks to thinking of both students and and communities and families as like our 
um, you know, for lack of a better term, like the consumers that were interested in like, you know, helping, uh, you know, uh, feel good about this, right? As opposed to us being the experts and saying, this is what you, this is what you need. This is what you like, right? Um, so to me, it's about um, partnering with parents, um, having parents author their own spaces for engaging with the schools um, so that um, this becomes uh, a more collective process um, and a complementary process of developing critical consciousness as opposed to one that can either be competing or one, in w- one that happens in a vacuum from uh, what the parents or community members or, or family members are looking for. Wonderful. Scott, do you have anything to add? I think maybe the only thing I would add is that you know one of our um, one of our good colleagues and friends, James Hughley, who's a, a faculty member at the University of Pittsburgh, who who studies black parents' racial social like the ways in which black parents prepare their children to 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 navigate and challenge racism in in the world we live in. You know, I mean, one of the things that he finds, which I think like you know will not be surprising to you know to many parents, is that you know is that black parents often feel like a role that they are forced to play is. Is pushing is pushing on the school that their children attend to you know to 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 recognize the ways in which like the the schools implicit you know educators and the schools sort of implicit biases and practices can you know can be detrimental to the young people of color attending that school and and I think that that's you know and and pushing you know educators to think about you know the the representation of the the book you know the the books that children are reading and so on and so forth and I think that that's you know, that's not a, a fair burden that's, that's put on, on parents of color. But I think, um, but I think that's, you know, that's, that's certainly what happens. And, um, and, you know, and I do think that like, that, that schools, schools benefit from, from parents pushing on them to kind of examine like the ways in which oppressive social forces are manifest in the school community itself. And, and I do think that there's, there's, there, there are benefits to children seeing their parents kind of, you know, engaging in that type of, type of critical consciousness work, like within, you know, within a, within a institution that they, the children know really well and kind of recognize it's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, some of, some of its, you know, problematic practices. And if I could just add to that real quick, I think oftentimes in schools that serve communities of color, we all, you know, you know, whether intentionally or not, the, the, the parents, and the community that the communities that the students come from are often framed, sadly, as forces that we're trying to save the children from, right, through school, um, as opposed to seeing the the families and the community members as experts, in, you know, in their you know in their young folks and in their in their uh, community context, that we should be drawing into the educational process. Um, do this work. And I, and I think this especially holds true in the context of, which is many schools, you know, or most schools in the United States, right, where we have a predominantly, you know, white teaching force teaching students of color and, you know, and, you know, and good intentioned white folks who are really trying to figure out, if, well, if I don't know enough about their communities, their context, the students, like, how can I do this work well? Um, my response then would be is to, to, to partner with the experts on those students in their communities, and that's their families and their community members. That's very helpful. And thanks for sharing all these suggestions. And um, we have taken so much time from you today. 
before we wrap up our um, conversation, our interview, I would just uh, really quickly ask, what's your current project? And we definitely look forward to um, having you again at some time in future to talk about your current project. Great. Well, thank, well, thank you so much for having us. We, um, you know, having having spent a number of years on this on this critical consciousness project, um, one of the as we've been presenting on the project to educators um, and and administrators, one of the questions we've been getting is from from elementary educators who've been asking us like, well, you know, you did this project looking at the role secondary schools can play in fostering young people's critical consciousness of race and racism, but but what what you know what do you see as the role of elementary schools in this process and. Um, and that's and that's a question that you know that Darren and I and another collaborator of ours, Aliel Amin, like haven't haven't to date had a great answer for, and and I think that nudged us into the project we're currently ramping up to to carry out, which is which is a real look at the role that elementary teachers can play in in doing in fostering the the critical consciousness of the of the children they serve, and so that's um that's kind of what's what's up next for us as we as we as we look forward. Wow, very cool. Is this also going to be a mix and measure so our longitudinal study, or is this going to be a book project? It's a good question. It will definitely be mixed methods. Um, it mm-hmm. will, it will, be, it will, it will, it will be sort of. It may not be as as long as the as the project we just finished. Um, you know, we're at, at the moment we're sort of exploring the idea of spending a year in in a number of teachers' classrooms. Um, but but you know, it was it was. It's, I think it's quite clear to us that some of the value of this project we just finished was its longitudinal nature, as as Darren talked about. And so, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's way in which is if there's if there are ways in which the project becomes a, a more longitudinal one as it as it unfolds. Well, we definitely look forward to having you again to hearing your updates about this new project. Well, with that, thank you very much for taking your time to join us today, and thanks for. All sharing with us your stories about writing this wonderful book. And it's a great pleasure to talk with you, Darren and Scott. Thank you very much. We really, I appreciate the opportunity to share. Thanks so much for having us. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.